At this time, children are released to uh, Children's Church if they so desire. Our reading today is from Numbers 20, verses 10 through 13. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rabble, shall we bring water out of this rock for you? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. This is the word of the Lord. A note, microphones are more effective when you turn them on, so <laughs> just so you know. All right, would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of getting to come before you. Father, we thank you for being a father who longs to know his children and who makes himself known to us. So Lord, we ask that by your spirit, we would hear from you. The many things that we're carrying into this room wouldn't distract us, and that we'd be able to behold Jesus, who is the rock in the wilderness. Father, it's in his great name we pray. Amen. Well, I am uh, I'm in the process of working on a doctorate, and uh, last Friday, I think it was last Friday, but who knows with time anymore. Um, <laughs> I completed my final class for it, so I'm now officially in the writing phase, and I'll hopefully be done this time next year. And a great way to hold myself accountable is to tell all of you that hopefully I will be done this time next year. Uh, now, right when I started the process, I had a conversation with a pastor who was older than me who was pursuing the same degree. And at the time that I was talking to him, it was probably about five years or so ago, he was at the phase that I am at now, and he was contemplating whether or not he was going to actually finish his doctorate. And at the time, that idea seemed baffling to me. It's like, why would you put in all of that work only to stop short of actually getting the degree? And now that I am in that stage, <laughs> I completely understand where he is coming from. Um, now, it's not because, it's not simply because it's a lot of work, because it was a lot of work getting to this place. But for me, and I'm assuming it was uh, similar for him as well, somewhere along the way in pursuing this degree, the goal shifted. I started pursuing the degree in order to get the degree. But along the way, the learning really became the point. Also, it's a, it's a doctorate of ministry, and nobody cares. So, um, Tim Keller made a similar point in a sermon of his uh, that I, I heard a while back, and it, it stuck with me. He said that when he was in college, he was required to take a music appreciation class in order to get his degree. And he said that there was this test that he had to prepare for where the professor would play a tape, if you know what that is, um, 
But he would play a tape in class, and, and it had uh, various uh, pieces by famous composers. Um, and so students would have to hear the song and then guess, or hopefully not guess, you know, was this Beethoven, was this Mozart, was this Bach, and so on and so forth. And he said at the time he would listen to all of this wonderful music in order to get a grade, in order to get a degree with the point of getting a job to make money. So he broke it down to, I used to listen to Mozart to make money. (laughs) Or now, he says, he would spend a great deal of his own money in order to hear Mozart. Because somewhere along the way, the goal shifted. He says that it's because the perception of Mozart used to be useful but now it is beautiful. It's become an end in itself. All right, so what does that have to do with our passage? Well, when we get to this place in the book of Numbers, Moses has been leading the people through the wilderness for 40 years. For 40 years, and with a clear goal in mind, they were going to reach the promised land. They would go from slavery in a foreign country to inhabiting a place that they could call their own, a land, according to God, that was flowing with milk and honey. And with this promised land came the hope of rest, of joy, of satisfaction. This is what Moses had been yearning for, toiling for, for 40 years But in the four short verses that we just looked at, that goal, that end vanished for him. God simply said to Moses, this thing that you have wanted for so long is no longer available to you. In verse 12, God declares, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. And this verdict is crushing. But do you know who didn't appear to be crushed by it? Moses. Why? Well, let's go ahead and dig into this text and see what's going on. All right, so our passage really begins uh, in, in Numbers chapter 20 verses, well, we're in Numbers chapter 20, it really begins in verses 1 and 2. And there we encounter a problem. And what is this problem? Well, I'll read it for you. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now, there was no water for the congregation. There's no water for the congregation. You might be thinking, we've encountered this problem before, and you would be absolutely correct. The people of Israel were rescued by God from slavery in Egypt. God, through Moses, brought the most powerful nation on the planet at the time to its knees through a series of plagues, miraculously enabling them to cross the Red Sea on dry ground, bringing the waters back on the pursuing Egyptians, simultaneously saving Israel and destroying their enemies. God promised the people a land of their own, one that was flowing with milk and honey. But in order to get there, they had to cross a desert wilderness. Now, a common feature of a desert 
is a lack of water. In fact, it's kind of what makes a desert a desert. So while they were out there, lo and behold, they lacked water. On the first year of their wilderness wandering, there were two instances in which the Israelites were without water and in dramatic fashion. We observe the first in Exodus 15, in verses 22 and 23, we read, there it is, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, which is a Hebrew word that means bitter, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. It's very clear. And what did the people do? Did they look back at God's actions in the very recent past and think on the miracles he had just performed and say to themselves, God has been good to us. He has rescued us. He will provide. No. Instead, the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Moses, figure it out. Give us something. Well, then Moses cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. Well, pretty soon thereafter, and we looked at this passage in in great detail a few weeks ago, in Exodus 17, we read, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. But surely this time, after God had just provided water in similar circumstances, they would trust, right? wrong. Instead, the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? What do you have against our cows, Moses? Despite the accusation and the incredible lack of trust and gratitude, God shows the people grace and he instructs Moses to pass on before the people, taking with with you some of the elders of Israel And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now, when we come to our text in Numbers, we have have fast-forwarded nearly 40 years into the future, And the people are still in the wilderness. And you might be wondering, why are the people still in the wilderness? Well, Egypt is about 430 miles from Israel. That's a good distance, especially if you're on foot. But not so great a distance that it should take you 40 years to make the journey. But they were required to be in the wilderness for 40 years as a punishment for their faithlessness. See, God had brought them right up to the promised land. And Moses instructed the people to send spies to check out the land, and they did. Spies went into the land for 40 days. They collected fruit from the land, which included a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. These are big grapes. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. And they reported back to the people. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. 
they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Sounds good, right? But there's a catch. They continued, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. But the, people, but the people of Israel surely at this point were willing and able to take a step back and think, you know, God has brought us up out of the land of Egypt. He led us through the Red Sea. He has seen us through many military victories. We're going to be okay, right? Wrong. Instead, we read at the beginning of chapter 14 of Numbers, then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Well, this was one grumble too many. And as a result, God judged the people and he declared to them, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken Surely this I will do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. The children of the rebellious generation would be allowed to enter, but the ones who saw God work in Egypt but refused to trust would not. So again, when we get to our text, we are 40 years into the future, 40 years of wilderness wandering. Many of the older generation have now died, including Miriam, Moses' sister, the one who helped preserve his life when he was sent as a baby down the Nile River. This was a prophetess and the leading woman of Israel. So much has happened in that time. But all the while, God has proven himself faithful over and over again. So when confronted with yet another situation where the people don't have water, surely now they took it in stride, trusting that God would remain faithful, right? Well, let's go ahead and take a look at the people's response. In verses 3 through 5, we read, and the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? Again, the cattle. And why have you made us come, out, come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. The German philosopher Hegel famously said, the only thing that we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. And before we sit in judgment of the people of Israel, think back how many times have you repeated the same sort of thing in your own life. 
I know I certainly have. We have been here before, and now this time it is the younger generation making this cry. The younger generation who has grown up knowing that the older generation was barred from the promised land because of their stiff-necked grumbling against the Lord. But now presented with a problem they've seen before, they resort right back to it. It's almost comical how much this story resembles the interaction that Moses had with the Israelites all the way back in Exodus 17. But here the complaint grows. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Uh, There's a counseling term called gunny sacking. And this refers to times when people who are presented with a problem, but instead of just addressing the problem at hand, they then begin to list out all of the grievances that they've had over the last six months. This unfortunately is something that we often do to the people that we love the most. So spouses do this to each other. Parents do this to their children. Children do this to their parents. It's a hoot. Well, now the Israelites are doing it to God, and they've got 40 years worth of grievances that they are now airing out before him. They repeated the complaint they just made when Moses had first brought them and their livestock into the wilderness, and he led them there, according, according to them, to die back in Exodus 17.3. But now, after repeating that complaint, there's an added edge Now it's directed at Moses and Aaron together, and they say, why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt Egypt to bring us to this evil place? They're calling the place in which they are evil. Well, interestingly, in Numbers 13.32, we're told that the spies gave a, quote, bad report. It could also be translated an evil report. Now, however, in Numbers 20, they're charging Moses and Aaron with bringing them out of Egypt to an evil place. The same word that the spies had used to characterize the promised land. They were frustrated because the wilderness had no grain or vines or fig trees or pomegranates. The very fruit the spies brought back from the land of Canaan. In other words, here, The people were blaming Moses and Aaron because the wilderness was not like the promised land that they refused to enter 40 years previously. Lord have mercy. All right, so that's the people's response. Let's now look at Moses' response. Moses, once again, has to deal with the people's grumbling, and he starts out pretty well. In Numbers chapter 20, verses 6 through 9, we read, Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. See, God does care about their cows. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Moses, once again, confronted with the people's rebellion, is at the end of his rope. And so he does the exact thing that any of us should do when we find ourselves at the end of our ropes. He fell on his face before the Lord. 
says, God, I don't know what to do. I need your help. And God gives instructions. God does help. He gives very clear instructions, in fact. Moses is to take his staff, assemble the people, and speak, not to the people, but to the rock, which will then bring forth water. There's some similarities between these commands and what Moses is told to do back in Exodus 17, but there is a very important difference. In Exodus 17, Moses was called to strike the rock. Here, he is simply to speak to it. Okay, so Moses starts out strong. The question, though, is how does he finish? Because at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. I don't know if anyone had a chance to watch the Super Bowl that happened last month. Um, I, I listened to some commentary on the game after the fact, and you know, after people were done talking about Rihanna and how amazing she is, and can you believe she performed pregnant? It's amazing. After they're done talking about that, uh, the, many commentators described the game as a tale of two halves. Right? The Eagles came out strong. They were very clearly in control of the game. But did that matter? No, because they didn't finish. No one in the future is going to be talking about the Eagles' strong first half because they ended up losing the game. It's not how we start, it is how we finish. Moses, likewise, got off to a great start, but he had a disastrous finish. After receiving very clear instructions from God, we read that he gathered the assembly together before the rock and he said to them, uh-oh, Moses wasn't supposed to say anything to the people. He was instructed to speak to the rock. And what did he say? He said, hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Oh, no. Two very unfortunate things to point out from this response. First, Moses is taking a position in the midst of the people that God did not call him to take. He is standing as their judge. Moses was right in the past when he pointed out to the people that when they grumbled against him, in reality, they weren't grumbling against him, they were grumbling against God. So, for example, in Exodus 17, which I keep mentioning, right, which mirrors this text, Moses challenges the people, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And he's recognizing and, and grumbling again about their circumstances, even though he's kind of the scapegoat in reality, they're grumbling against God. So whose right is it to do the judging? It is God's. God is the one who's really being called out. God is the one who should have the task of responding. It is God's job to judge. I remember when, when I was in high school, there were a bunch of guys on, uh, on my baseball team in particular uh, who started getting tattoos at like 17 and 18. There's a lot of very unfortunate tattoos. And one of them, uh, one of my friends got a tattoo uh, across his lower back. And it was a phrase, uh, only God can judge me. Now, despite that, that tattoo and the placement of it inviting a whole lot of judgment, um, especially given the fact that he didn't appear to believe in God, uh, theologically, there's some truth to that. Right? The reality is, in an ultimate sense, only God has the right to judge. 
God had not called Moses to stand in that place. God had not given him that authority. So Moses was acting out of turn. And he is making a judgment on them, calling them, you rebels. And he goes on to make another, perhaps even bigger mistake. You look at his response in verse 11. No, not in verse 11, in verse 10. After calling them rebels, he says, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Shall we? Excuse me. Who's bringing water from the rock? This is the work of God that Moses appears to be taking credit for. And what does he go on to do? He lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. The rod, which was the rod of judgment, a symbol of power and a symbol of the power and authority of God. This he was lifting up against God to strike the rock. And what was the rock? Well, in Exodus 17, which again parallels this text, the rock is associated with the presence of God Himself. A truth which the Apostle Paul makes explicit in 1 Corinthians 10.4 when he writes, For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, notice, even though we're going to go on to talk about God's judgment, notice the incredible grace of God in this instance. Moses, who just lifted up his hand against God and essentially struck him, deserves to be struck himself. He has earned condemnation. He has earned sudden death. But what does God do? He provides. And water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock. And what a powerful foreshadowing of the salvation that Jesus was going to provide. Jesus, who is the rock, allows his life-giving water to flow after He has been struck. It makes me think of Isaiah's description of the Messiah in Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus is the rock of ages who was cleft, torn apart for us. And as we'll sing here shortly, In Jesus, we can say, here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, and we see it when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. God did show grace, but something seriously wrong had taken place. And while Moses hadn't put himself beyond God's grace and forgiveness, there was still going to be a consequence for his actions. So let's go ahead and take a look now at God's judgment. And this is what we read in the verses that follow. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, For the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. What Moses had just done 
it was horrible. It was so wrong. And we've established why. But even knowing that, this judgment, I think, can be, can be hard for us to take in. It is hard for us to not put ourselves in Moses' place and to think for 40 years he had served God faithfully. For 40 years he had put up with the grumbling of the people. For 40 years he had been working toward this goal. And when he is on the precipice, right, where they are in the wilderness right now, they're basically on the southern border of the promised land. They are right there. 40 years. God looks at Moses and says, this is as far as you're going to get. At the end of his life, God called Moses up onto the top of Mount Nebo. And from there, God showed him the entire promised land. But said to him in Deuteronomy 34, 4, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. That's hard, right? But again, you know who didn't really think so? Moses. And how do we know that? Well, when God tells him in Deuteronomy 34 that he could see the promised land but never enter, what was Moses' response? There is none. Moses is silent. He doesn't complain. He doesn't object. He doesn't argue. And one thing I think we can feel pretty certain about is that if Moses felt like arguing, he would have. Moses spent his entire life arguing with God. Even in their very first encounter at the burning bush, God tells Moses that he wants to save his people, that he wants to use Moses to rescue the people of Israel. And what's Moses' response? Again, with this theophany, he's looking at a bush that is burning but is not consumed, and he knows this is God himself. I'm standing on holy ground. What does Moses say? Please send someone else. And that statement then characterizes, to a large degree, Moses' relationship with God. God says, I'm going to do this. And Moses is like, really? Like, do we have to? Over and over again, Moses is comfortable arguing with God. But God comes to Moses. He gives this judgment. Despite all of his work, Moses says, Nothing. Why? Because Moses wasn't concerned any longer with the earthly goal. Somewhere along the way, God himself became the goal. One Christian author puts it beautifully when she writes, all of his experiences of discerning and doing the will of God had brought him to the place where he knew down to the bottom of his being that the will of God was the best thing that could happen to him under any circumstances. For Moses, the presence of God was the promised land. Next to that, everything else had already paled in significance. 
God himself was the promised land. So think for a minute. Think about your life, about your goals, about your pursuits. What are you striving for? Is it the perfect career or the perfect home or the perfect family? Do you want to be young forever or at least look like it? None of these things are bad, but none of them can really satisfy. Moses wanted to reach the promised land. It was good for him to want to reach the promised land. It was good for him to work for those 40 years because that is exactly what God had called him to do. But over the course of those 40 years, something had shifted. He realized that the promised land was just, was just a shadow of the real thing. Everything good about it wasn't meant to point to the gift itself. It was meant to point to the giver. Right? What was the promise of their own land? What, what comes with, with that pursuit? Well, peace, security, a place to call their own. Right? But nothing in this world can provide any of those things in an ultimate sense. Everything that we look at, everything that we strive for, that in an earthly sense, it's fading. It's a mist. It's here today and it is gone tomorrow. The only thing that can provide true satisfaction is God himself. And one of the most beautiful gifts of the gospel is that in it, that is exactly what we receive. God doesn't just offer us vague promises. He doesn't offer us success or wealth. Again, things that, that we might experience for a little bit of time and then we get to watch it vanish. No, God gives us the gift of himself. That's the true promise. God himself is the promised land. He has made us for himself. And our hearts will remain restless until they find their rest in him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you this morning grateful. Grateful for, for the many ways in which you demonstrate your goodness to us. God, there are so many good things in this life, so many reasons for us to be filled with joy and gratitude. But Lord, may we, like Moses, look beyond the gifts so that we can see you, the giver. Father, help us to see you as our highest goal, our chief pursuit. By your Spirit, God, we ask that you would work in our hearts so that we could pursue our chief end, and to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. Father, we thank you that that is offered to us freely in the gospel, that we are right with you, not because of anything that we've done, because that would just turn into another vapor. But we are right with you because of the finished work of Jesus. Lord, help us to trust that. 
Give us the peace and the comfort that go with knowing you. Help us to be grateful for that above all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.